Hi, I'm Neil Sharp, partner at Pen Partnership and your host for this episode of The Rise of the Customer. If you were introduced to somebody and they say, I work in sales, what are your first thoughts going to be? Go on, be honest. Would you think, wow, that's great. That sounds like a great thing to do. Or would you inwardly groan and wonder whether this person spends their days forcing people to part with their hard-earned cash for something they don't really want? Sales has a whole host of connotations when people hear the words, but what really goes on behind the scenes? Is the sales process really just a way of making money, or are there conscious efforts made to really consider the customer experience at each stage? I'm joined today by Gary Gormley, owner and founder of Fab Solutions. Gary is a contact centre specialist. In addition to his day job, he's host and founder of the Contact Centre Network, which is a kind of club that brings the contact centre community together with speakers, panellists and insights. Gary spends his days helping organisations to be commercially more successful through effective sales, but also with a genuine focus on customer experience. One of his mantras is that the contact centre agent is the unsung hero and that they deserve to be celebrated. At the same time, through his work, he helps organisations improve the experience that employees have day in, day out on the front line. I wanted to explore with Gary what goes on behind the scenes in sales, how much consideration is really given to what the customer experience feels like. We explore how you go about designing sales journeys and how you help salespeople to develop the right skills and capabilities to find that difficult balance between commercial performance and delivering a great experience. I hope from this episode, you'll not only get some useful ideas and thoughts about how sales links to customer experience, but also get a sense of what it really takes to deliver great sales experiences day in, day out. Let's talk to Gary. Hi, Gary. Thank you very much indeed for joining me today. And as I said in the introduction, you run your own business specializing in helping organization improve their commercial performance. Uh, and I know you do that through a variety of means. What I know for you is that you help organizations improve their sales performance. That's what I know you for. And um, I think many people might shy away from that as a claim. And we'll get stuck into what people think about sales and how that makes people react in a moment. But before we get into that, can we just start off by hearing a bit about your story in your own words? What's your career path been and how have you ended up doing what you do today? God, that's a long story, that, Neil. How long's your podcast? <laughs> well, um, I'll try and keep it clean. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep it clean. I'll keep it short. So, I mean, I've always I've always loved sales. And I, I was in sales before I even realized I was in sales. And going back to, uh, I always talk about my, my days of yore, which is in the wonderful world of hospitality, which was um, in McDonald's. That's my, my, my claim to fame was uh, I... I flip burgers for a living but actually i always say for anybody that's looking for roles or jobs for their children to do giving them a a, a star or two in the world of mcdonald's is always a good one because it teaches you the basics of leadership management sales and i was upselling cross-selling do you want to make flurry with that? Do you want an apple pie? Do you want to make it into <laughs> And you don't realize that all those like little upsells and influencing pieces actually start kind of giving you a little bit of a ground in, in sales. So I started my sales journey, if you like, in, in McDonald's. And I found myself in a probably more of a purist sales role, uh, purely by accident after a terrible stint at um, a retailer who no longer is around, which speaks a, speaks a lot. But uh, I did a stint in in that before I ended up in the uh, the insurance sector, selling private medical insurance to companies for a living. So I, I literally landed in it by a series of maybe poor job choices that landed me in a in a role which I absolutely loved and and could really do well at and a, a role that's kind of taken me through different variations of of sales so much so that I decided near enough nearly three years ago that actually I want to be doing this as a business for myself because it's it's a very rewarding industry the sales industry and I think you could do lots of different roles you could do advice selling you could do b2b selling b2c selling or b2b2c selling so there's lots of different things you can throw your hand at and I've been fortunate enough to do pretty much all of them in in my time so yeah I've seen sales capability partners come into organizations and I've seen them leave organizations having not made a significant amount of difference and that was for me the bit where I thought there's the niche that's the niche for me is how can I be a partner to organizations having had the t-shirt and having experienced how maybe not to do it or different ways of doing it to then say, right, how can I be of help? 
And that's the key. That's that's kind of what landed me in it. I, I talked it for years, a good game of I want to be my own boss. But I got to a point in my career where I was like, if I don't do it now, I never will. So having confidence in myself, <laughs> leapt into it. And here we are nearly three years later, still trading. So I must be able to sell because I'm, I'm still making money as a, as a, as a solo um, business, which is great. Fantastic. Fantastic. So just to summarize that, then you upsold McDonald's and then you went into health insurance to perhaps repair the damage that you'd done to the population by doing the first sales job that you did. So, uh, Yeah. I mean, I did sell salads as well, but it's still choice, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Carrot sticks as well. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good. Okay. Well, look, let's get stuck into sales. So thank you for that. And yes, indeed, you know, congratulations for, for trading, not only for three years, but I guess, um, you, you know, you've had an interesting time over the last 12 months, like most people have that have uh, got fairly new businesses. So absolutely. Yeah, good. All right, let's talk about sales then. So uh, this feels a bit like a confessional to me. So I do it, my colleagues do it, and many people that we engage with do it daily. But for some, it kind of conjures up a negative set of connotations. So Gary, what is sales? Tell me what you think sales is. Um, This is going to sound weird, but whenever I, I talk about sales, I talk about it as a game of rejection. And it pretty much is. Unless you've got 100% conversion, you are going to get rejected more times than you are get accepted. So you have to get really comfortable with that. And for anybody that says, oh, well, I've got a 60, 70, 80% conversion rate. My challenge to you is you're not generating enough leads then because actually <laughs> your your funnel is looking pretty slim at the top and maybe quite fat at the bottom. So I talk about it as being a, a game of rejection. And I think it's, it's that thing where you're, some people like it, some people don't like it. And you go into that fight or flight mode, don't you? And somebody actually says, pick up the phone and make a sales call. And you either relish the thought or you go running for the hills. And I think when we talk about kind of sales and sales psychology, it is about that that kind of neuroscience of selling and those neurochemicals that are in your brain, which either say you like it or you don't like it. And they're all very similar in that push of endorphins that kind of say, right, actually, I'm going to make this sale. Those experiences heighten and you love it. Or you get that overwhelming sense of doom Mm. uh, where somebody says, oh, go go make some some cold calls or some lukewarm calls. And for me, I think it's you just need to embrace it and um, avoid some of the the stuff that your inner voice is selling you and actually just get on and and do it. But it is a game of rejection, but it's also a very rewarding industry to be in. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's a great phrase, a game of rejection. That's that's excellent. But I mean, so what, I mean, is it, is it a, a journey you're managing or what? I mean, obviously the whole theme of these podcasts is about the rise of the customer and customer experience management. I mean, are we talking here about kind of gently managing somebody through a journey so they make a decision to to purchase the product you're looking for or what how, how do you sort of how do you see that and maybe touch on some of the the psychology elements you mentioned there because i think this is a really fascinating area people would would want to hear about yeah you know what i think you're you're right there that it that it is a journey and i think our job as salespeople is to help navigate the customer through that journey and i think the the key part of that is you can't navigate them through the journey if you don't understand what they're experiencing and why they've started to go on that journey in the first place so within kind of the the sales process talk emotional intelligence of the sale and the psychology of the sale and the neuroscience of the sale we've got all these weird and wonderful different kind of providers saying do this do that do the other and think about the brain and i yes think about the brain but Put yourself in the customer's shoes. So I thought I talk about empathetic selling and how you can use your perspective or your understanding of the customer's perspective to help navigate them across that journey. So you've got to think about why is it that they've either made a phone call in. So if if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where the phone rings and you get inbound calls or you get inbound referrals for leads that you might then go and do an appointment or a demo with, you've got to think about what those trigger points are and what position that person has come from. So you talk about what's their what's their current position, what's their status quo uh, and where you're trying to get them to. So it's those trigger points within the journey that allow you to then think about, okay, right, so this is important to this customer. This is important to this customer. This will make their lives better. And you can start to piece those things together to help bolster your sales position. So actually, 
there's i think it's um is it a zig ziglar quote it stop selling start helping and that's the approach that i kind of look at with a lot of the sales practices that i teach and that i i kind of recommend and i i talk about it through the lens of influence and persuasion rather than selling product or selling features because th- those people people aren't aren't rational in that respect is they don't think about oh i need this and i need to do xyz unless it's a tv or something that they're ringing about but yeah. in same case you actually you've, you've then maybe got price that's an issue so actually it's how do you then overcome that as an objection and what is it that the they were ringing for the first place and what where they've been looking for and all sorts of things like that so yeah it's definitely a journey and our job as salespeople is to help navigate them to make that purchasing decision easy simple and one that they're least likely to regret okay and I mean, I've I've often heard about it, sort of, you, sort of saying you're taking somebody from a current reality and pre- presenting a sort of future reality to them that says, if you do this, this is where you'll end up, sort of thing. I mean, is that is that a kind of a is that a tactic or is that kind of the philosophy that you would kind of talk about in your training? I, I would say absolutely, it's the philosophy, and I think you have to understand the current realities, or, or as I refer to it, the status quo, because actually, your competition aren't your your enemy. There, it's changing somebody's mindset from how the current position is because actually the status quo is usually it's quite comfortable it's quite safe uh, i'm quite happy there and it requires me to change and make a different decision and that can come with fear it can come with consequence if i get it wrong so actually what you're trying to do is understand what that current status quo is and elicit the emotional responses and the positivity that's associated with a new solution or a new kind of horizon that's coming down the line that is the new kind of way of working, if you like. So it's how do you bridge that gap? And that's the salesperson's challenge, not necessarily competition. It's how do they educate the customer to enough of an extent that they see enough value in moving and making a change. Okay. So, I mean, that doesn't sound too aggressive or threatening or challenging when you describe it that way so so why is it then that i mean you you said at the beginning there that you know you've either got people that dread it or you know they kind of relish it roll their sleeves up and get stuck in i mean are you born with the the attributes that um that make somebody a, a good salesperson that enjoys doing it or can it all be trained or is there something in between the two you know do you, is, is there a bit of dna somewhere that actually kind of drives that that feeling that you can have empathy and that you can kind of you know exercise your influencing skills in the right way what is it is it born or is it trained do you know what? It's, it's an interesting debate that isn't it and i in the camp where you can definitely train someone to be a better salesperson i also believe that there are some fundamentals in your personality that might make you be a better salesperson than somebody else for example if you are more extrovert you are more likely to showcase your passion and your enthusiasm and be more comfortable interacting with somebody who is more reserved Uh, but that's not to say that those two people can't be equally as successful in the sales process. And it's an interesting kind of question because actually when we talk about sales training and when we talk about kind of is it nature, nurture, I think there is definitely a case for nurture your salespeople um, to be better as part of that process because there is a sales process. And I talk about, I I have um, an eight-step sales process that mm-hmm. I train mm-hmm. uh, and it's called the pause and pod and poser sales process. And it's, you, you, it's five steps is six steps. Is seven, I've got eight. <laughs> 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 it's because I like to be different, but it, it's basically saying, right, actually, if you follow this methodology, you will have a structure and you will have a sales process that allows you to be more comfortable and more confident in applying that as you go through the stages of your sales process and your sales conversation. It's not to say that it's prescriptive or prescribed or or so rock rock solid say, if you don't follow this step, you're never going to make the sale. Mm. But it just gives you a little bit more guidance and a bit more comfort that that you can follow a particular methodology and it will help you get to the end point maybe a little bit quicker. Okay. I mean, can you briefly just describe the steps? I mean, I think it'd be really useful because I'd love to then kind of consider it from the customer's perspective at the end of that. So would you mind sort of just, you know, just stepping us briefly to it? It's, um, did I tell you what it was called? I did, didn't I? It's, it's did. the pod, pod and poser, poser yeah. uh, technique. <laughs> and it's, it, I mean, 
I'm a big fan of acronyms, as you'll probably see. If anybody looks at my LinkedIn feed, they'll see acronyms galore. But uh, it's a great way of remembering things, and it's a great way of learning. So the the pod element, and you can you can look at these in in two respects. Is say the pod element is probably more around the qualification and the understanding of customers' needs, and the poser element is say right. Actually, once you've got that, you're then into talking about the proposition and how it benefits and what the solution could bring. So the pod element stands for that whole preparation and research piece. And we talk about preparation, we talk about having the right tools and the right kind of systems, but preparation for me sits more in line with how much do you understand about your customer and their market? So you can have a a reasonably intellectual conversation with a customer about things that are happening within their space. So that shows your authority, it shows your credibility, and it shows you've done a little bit of research. So that preparation phase is really key. And you can bridge that within training, you can bridge it within your own personal development, and understanding more about your clients to help you kind of talk to them uh, more clearly about some of the problems that they're facing. Mm-hmm. And then it's the the opening. So this isn't Hi, how are you? It's Gary from Fab Solutions. It's more about how you create more of a, a relationship with that client in those first few minutes, within those first few interactions. So how are you building rapport with customers so that you you stand out and you're different to other salespeople? And actually, how do you show a little bit of empathy about the situation? Because actually, it's really easy to get carried away when somebody says, oh, I need sales training. Oh, yeah, we do sales training. But actually your customer will remember you with more favorable terms. If you could say, right, actually, sales training is great. What is it that makes you feel like you need sales training at the moment? Tell me a little bit more about your current situation. And what pain points does that cause for you? How does that impact on your overall objectives? And what stress does that bring to you in the in your, in your team meetings when you're having those conversations? So understanding it from their perspective by building a little bit of a rapport and empathy. And then you've got that discovery piece. And I, I, I this is the best part of the, the sales process for me, because it's it's where you get all that insight. It's where you get all that intelligence that will help you a little bit later on. And a lot of people say to me, oh, I, I struggle to close, Gary. i like, you don't struggle to close, you struggle to question. Because actually the closing part is relatively easy. It's, it's one question. Would you like to go ahead with that? But actually you've not earned the right to use that question if you've not done enough of the um, the intelligence gathering at the start. So it's understanding through that bank of questions that you've got, what is it that's important to the client? And I think this is probably the, the biggest area where, where I see people fail in the sales process is they struggle to think of questions that are relevant to the the products and the proposition and eliciting that pain point for the customer. So that's all the pod section. And then the the, the poser section is all around once you're then into your pitch. So you're, you're talking about the proposition. You're talking about the difference that your proposition makes and the value that it can bring and using a few stories to help bring that thing to life. And then obviously it's not an ideal world, is it? So people are going to say no sometimes. So you've got to then be in that space where you can handle objections. Mm-hmm. But understanding those and pre-framing what objections might come up first is absolutely key being able to handle them. So I talk about pre-framing and reframing those objections positively. And that's a psychological principle right. that's, uh, that a, a doctor came up with when they was dealing with mental health patients is how can they pre-frame negativity and reframe it positively so that they feel uh, a little bit more positive about the outcome. So And it works really well in the um, in the objection handling days. And then obviously you've got sealing the deal, which is where you're asking and you're testing the waters, you're trial closing and seeing if the, the kind of the option, what you've tabled is is right and fit for purpose. Uh, and is it going to tackle some of the problems that they, they, they said earlier? And then obviously if they do say no, another area where people tend to fall down is they just accept that no for a no and they don't then follow up. So that effective follow-up process is really key. And once you've made the deal and once you've made the sale, there is no better time than to ask for a, re- a referral into somebody else. And we're typically British and we don't like asking for referrals and we don't like the process. But I say find a process that works for you that says, hey, Neil, I know that we've just completed this deal. Great that we've been able to do some business with you. You must speak to a lot of people in your industry. Is there anybody else that might be in the same kind of situation that you wouldn't mind referring me on to? Does that sound high pressure? 
not at all, does it? So that's the pod and poser methodology that I um I train. Right. right. Well, you can take a deep breath then. So thank you for for rattling through that. It's really really clear and really interesting. And like you say, it's a process. Uh, it's obviously got a lot of nuances within that. Can I ask? I mean, how does d- does that apply equally or, or similarly in telephone versus face to face, or indeed B two B versus B two C? I mean, is, is the principles the same? Um, do you still sort of teach the same process? You know what? I think the principles of B two B and B two C are very similar. The biggest challenge that you've got is within a B two B environment. I think. There's some HubSpot research that I looked at, whereas it's saying that there's about eight different uh, decision makers in the B2B process. So when you're looking at a B2C sale, it's generally there might be one or two people. So it might be me and my partner making a decision. So that's a very simple and very short decision making window. But actually, if you think about the the, the larger scale organizations, they're going to have a procurement team, they're going to have a finance team, they're going to have a compliance team, they might have a sales director that might be interested, they might then have the CEO that needs to make that. So actually, the, the process for the sales professional within that mix is say, how do you understand the stakeholder network that sits within the person that you're having the sales conversation with and how can you help them cascade all those value messages that I've just given you into a situation where they're actually they're then telling the FD or the the compliance team how it's going to help benefit the team because with the greatest will in the world they're not going to talk about it with the same passion that you've got for your products and your solutions so the sales cycle is 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 different in that there is multiple people involved in the situation. So you really need to understand who is in the buying process, who's an influencer in that process, and who's a decision maker in that process, and how much influence does the person that you're speaking to have over the other people, and then what you can do to help them in that decision-making process. Okay. So, and we certainly, when I studied sales um, many, many years ago, when I was uh, I was helping to run sales forces and, and before I... Uh, stepped into marketing we used to talk about decision making units the fact that you've got a kind of group of people who probably jointly make that decision you might have an overall decision maker but actually in quite a lot of cases it's a it's a dmu a decision making unit is, is that is that still sort of part of sales theory in terms of b2b selling is is, is that resonance yeah still? yeah absolutely so it's, it's the decision making unit is is it's a pivotal kind of role i suppose because actually if you don't influence that decision making unit in the right way it can cost you the sale. Or if you don't find out what's important to that collective decision-making unit, then you're on a hide into nothing. So it's part of that process is to say, right, what's the immediate concern that you're trying to fix? And then what are the the unintended consequences of not doing that? So what's the wider implication of it on your business? What's the wider implication of it on your customer? What's the wider implication of it on your profit line? And then who in that decision-making unit controls all those things? And what do they want to hear? Uh, and what is what important information do you need to share with them? So I definitely think it, it probably even more so these days because people don't like making decisions in isolation because there's too much responsibility that then sits on their shoulders. Yeah. Uh, so they like to have that. There's agreement in the masses, isn't it? It's um, wisdom of crowds, all those kind of things. So there's definitely definitely a need to kind of influence and find out who's in that decision-making unit and the level of importance they've got in the decision-making process. Okay. So, again, I'm just trying to sort of think of this from the the end, the customer's end, if you like. So if you're looking down this from the customer's end of the lens. So what's the desired customer experience that you're trying to create so if you sort of step into the customer's shoes at the receiving end of your your process that you've talked through there you know i guess should they be aware that it's happening to them or is it a case of all you're doing is you're you're trying to sell them a a dream is is not quite the word i'm looking for but some sort of you know future state that they might want and that they're seamlessly carried through it or is it okay for them to feel that they're being taken through a process how do you sort of think of it from a customer experience perspective when you're you're talking about sales yeah, I think the worst sales experiences I've had have been ones where I've 
I actively know that they're trying to sell to me. <laughs> yeah. And we don't like it, do we? The no. human side, you're, you're, in the, you're in the shop and the sales executive comes over and says, no, I'm fine, leave me alone. Mm. So we don't like being told to. Whereas actually, if that person came up and said, how are you today? How's your day been? Was there anything specific that you're looking at? Or you were talking just more generally? So you start to warm to that person and then you're happy to take advice. So it, we're, we're all about trying to build that trust and that relationship to then, make the the kind of the, the recommendation or the offer them some solutions that might be relevant to them and i think that kind of quote that i talked about earlier is stop selling start helping is probably the the best kind of way to approach the sales process is to say right actually if you if you go into this saying i'm going to sell to you today you're probably not going to make the sale mm. if you go into it saying i'm going to find a way that i can help you today and actually, it might not be right. So culturally, we might not be the right fit for you. So let's see if there, if if I'm fit for purpose. And I always say that within some of the conversations that I'm having when I'm pitching to a client to say, right, let's see if we're the right fit. Because mm. actually, it's got to be two way, hasn't it? It's got to be you've got to be comfortable making the sale. And I was on the um, I experienced this firsthand with an AdWords type of uh, example where this person was like. Like literally, if it wasn't price and it was just me and you in the room now and it was the price that you want, would we be making a deal? I'm like, I get all the techniques that you're trying to use, but it's actually sending me running a million miles the other way. Yeah. So um, you've got to build that kind of that reciprocal nature in the conversation. And I, I actually have to feel like I can trust you with 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 my business. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's interesting. I guess that was what I was sort of scratching at really, which is, I, I, and I understand entirely why you have your acronym, you have your kind of steps in the process, if you like. But obviously, like we just said, you know, it, if you feel that happening, you feel like you're, you're fodder, you know, you're, you're, you're just kind of being chewed through. So let, let's use that as a sort of pivot perhaps into how you actually train people to do this and how do you because obviously you can train a process right everyone can look at a process they can write it down and they can step through it but then the unintended consequence of that might be what we've just talked about which is you just very clumsily from a customer's perspective feel like you're being stepped through a process so how do you go about translating that process into a fluid customer experience so that you know there is a a feeling that someone's actually trying to help you rather than just sell something to you yeah. And I, I always say, firstly, don't train them to sell, train them to question and train them to listen and train them to respond to those those questions. And I think there's a few bits that you can think about in terms of thinking through what the customer, putting yourself in the customer's shoes is, is the key point. And then starting to say, right, actually, so how would how would you respond to a customer inquiry who says X and kind of talk, talking through all the problems that the client might have. And I think there's, there's there's two spectrums to it. You say once you're clear on the problem that you're trying to solve, it becomes so much easier to empathize, resonate, and then apply your solutions to some of those problems because you're having similar discussions with people every day. And actually, there is um, there is a technique that I talk about, which um, it's called social proofing. And if you can evidence to um, a potential client that they're not alone in their decision making and a lot of people think very similar to, to kind of the, the problems that they're having and a lot of people come to you for some of the solutions that you're offering then actually it starts to build that familiarity and it starts to give me kind of that wisdom of crowds type thing that we were talking about it says right actually well I'm not alone in my in my problem, so actually let's let's talk, and I'll open up a little bit more. Mm, okay, so it's questioning, it's appropriate responses, it's feels a bit like improvisation as well. Is that is that a reasonable sort of um, statement? Because I mean, what you're talking about here is it's a live conversation. It's not a, it's not. A, I mean, I guess you could sell via email, but it's very unlikely. So if you're having a conversation with somebody, you've got to have that that improv skill as well that you you know you, you you're able to respond in a certain way and you're able to listen and kind of pull together the it's like in my mind sometimes when I'm going through this process it's joining up the dots you're kind of like painting a picture in your mind and then the moment comes when you think right okay right we're now in a situation where clearly I've conveyed my messaging and now maybe it is time to move on to the next step which is you know asking about you know whether there's budget and those sorts of things I mean yeah, it, yeah totally I mean it's a two-way conversation right if I just talked at you for 60 minutes in a in a sales pitch you're not going to warm to me for sure that's 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 the that's the first point but you're not then going to understand a little bit more so that's why I always say when people say that they can't close it's like well you're not having a conversation enough in the discovery phase to really understand 
why they've contacted you in the first place or why they might need uh, your help or what some of the main challenges that they're experiencing and then being able to say, right, well, actually, these three things that you said here, I think I can help you with. Let me tell you a little bit more. This and this, I don't think we're probably the right fit. So you might want to have a look at another provider. And actually, if there's something that you don't do and you can connect them up with somebody who you've got a relationship with mm. and again that builds that reciprocity and it builds that trust in that relationship so it pulls you as the um as the as the, the centerpiece to that whole sales process so you become much more of a trusted partner and um, but it's absolutely two-way it's two-way and if you're not having a conversation and you're not asking the right questions you're not going to get that two-way dynamic yeah interesting and i mean uh, we know from all of our work, okay, the work that we do and the work that you do, that you know, quite often customers don't necessarily always make rational decisions about things because it's life's more complicated than that. So when you're helping an organization to really think about driving their performance to the next level in, in selling and, and their sort of commercial approach to a proposition, do you really get into the psychology of how people buy and and you know sort of how you you think about how you connect up to that? I mean, how much of that do you sort of focus on? Because obviously it's quite a complex area, and um, I'm sort of thinking there about how you take that and apply it in a live situation to the psychology that's going on at the other end from the customer's perspective. Yeah, and the the, the buying process is is so complicated, and when you think about kind of how the the human brain works, you've got your your frontal cortex, you've got the the reptilian brain, you've got the limbic system, and all those things. And do people really think rationally when it comes to making a sale? Or, or when they're when they're experiencing an event, they don't. They think about the problem. They think about all the things that have led up to that, which then become this crescendo of something which says, okay, right, I actually now need to go and do something about that. So right. people don't think rationally. And even people who you might associate with rational roles, like your finance person or your kind of compliance person, even they at some point, there is a trigger point that is a slightly probably less rational thought process that means actually we need X or we're experiencing Y. And there is a certain burden or there's some sort of responsibility that then sits with them that they then need to think, right, if I don't fix this, this is going to be the upshot of it. Uh, And they don't think rationally in, in that sense alone. So you've actually got to start thinking about what are the trigger points that kind of cause people to make that inquiry in the first place. But then you've got to take them through that kind of process where you're taking them out of that irrational phase of, of buying and that distress buying zone into a more rational state we can then talk about the benefits talk about the um the outputs and the value that it's going to bring and that's where we talk about moving them from that status quo where might be a distressed person at the moment what you're trying to do is move into that position of confidence that position of comfort where they're more they're seeing things more rationally as a result of the solution that you've presented so you're actually diagnosing the issue and then presenting um a, a solution that's that's almost like the treatment to the problem okay and all of that makes a lot of sense when so if, if you find yourself in a sales situation and you're with a customer who obviously needs something or indeed thinks they might need something and I'm sure everyone listening to this has experienced it, and I certainly experienced it, is almost what I'd call the other end of the spectrum of that is, which is you get a, a phone call coming through and someone literally starts to go straight into a cold sales process. I'm thinking of certainly my mobile phone provider, for example, who I, I continually get um, calls with rapport building that sort of takes about 20 seconds in their own mind and then go straight in for the, you know, uh, have you thought about one of these sort of thing? I mean, I guess what you're talking about is is a long way from that. I mean, is there is there a a role for that kind of, of thing? Is it just a numbers game when people are doing that and they still have success? I mean, I'm just fascinated for you know, you're, how that works. It's inbound and outbound, isn't it? If you're, if you're fortunate enough to have a marketing team that can generate the phone to ring or can generate appointments coming through to a contact us form, then happy days. That is the space that we all want to be in. But that doesn't always happen. And nine times out of 10, you're given... I was going to say you're given the yellow pages, but that shows my age. You're given <laughs> LinkedIn and says, right, go and generate some leads off the back of that. And that's where if you're anything like me, you're probably getting spammed to high heaven mm. um, in your in your LinkedIn inbox or somebody's found your email from LinkedIn and then decided that it's fine to to email me with mm-hmm. with their solution, which is just generally a pitch that goes straight into it. But mm. a, again, it's it's a similar process to say, right, 
recognize that you're an interruption. If you're making a phone call, it's like, Neil, you're not expecting this call, but I think you'd be the perfect fit for something that I, I've got that might be of might be of help. And that pattern interruption piece is the the, the outbound sales process that I talk about is you'll be you won't be surprised. It's another acronym. It's called Space. <laughs> But it talks about how you set the mindset for your outbound sales process and how you go into it with the right kind of training mind. And if you you can rattle through the numbers and you can make 100 calls, but are you going to get success from that? And actually, most people say, right, I'll just bang these out. And they use words like, oh, I'll just rattle through or I'll just bang out all these calls. And that's entirely the wrong process. Mm. This is say, right, have some targeted conversations with people that you know that are most likely to be receptive for what it is that you need. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'll be more likely to pick up the uh, phone and actually talk to you about it. Um, so talk about setting up your, your mindset right. And then there's that pattern interruption piece to say, how can you stand out by recognizing that you're, you are an interruption and being honest and open with the interruption? Say, hi, Neil, you're not expecting this call. Have you got 30 seconds just so I can explain why I picked you to call today? Mm-hmm. And it's that piece that might just help tip you into okay, right, I'll entertain this this guy. And then okay. you're going in straight with the attraction space. What's the attention grabber? And then how do you build that commitment, that low-level commitment? And then, again, because we don't get the sale on the first call, how do you then have an effective follow-up process that means that you're continuing to cycle through all those people that you've prospected? So that's a nice right. shot. Shot's a tick one. No, no, okay, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, I mean, it, it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, going back to the the comments I made right at the very beginning, I mean, it's it's the kind of spamming behaviour, it's the kind of phone calls where you do you get the very poor behaviours that probably, when we talk about the word sales and the shudder that some people have around, oh God, you know, I don't want to do sales, then that's probably what generates that feeling, or certainly that kind of behaviour that generates that. So, but it's very interesting to hear you say that. You know, you can kind of adopt some of the techniques you talked about and you might only have a few seconds to kind of tip them over the kind of like, am, am, am I just going to put the phone down now and say bugger off or actually am I going to say, okay, no, it sounds interesting, let's carry on. I mean, that's that's a, I can sort of feel the slight unease I would feel in, in those kinds of cold calling situations because I certainly don't really sell in that kind of environment, but um, I can well, see. I, I think it's interesting to say, right, even if it's not cold calling, what you're doing as well is you're doing cold digital outreach um so you've got to have that same kind of mentality say recognize you're an interruption into their inbox Mm. i know you're not expecting this this message however i think there's two things that might be of interest so why don't you read on Mm. um and actually if you talk about again understanding your client and understanding their problems of today and how you can kind of create a solution is really important because you can say right actually there are two things that i'm speaking to at the moment speaking to clients like you at the moment with and it's x and x which one of these resonates with you you've then got that oh yeah well actually both of those resonate so I, I can I can start interacting with you in a conversation because you actually recognize some of the problems i've got rather than hi and i get it all the time hey gary i can see you're a coach we run these great things. We can get you generating more leads. You've actually not even established if generating leads is a problem. Right, right, right. Okay, so okay. Digital outreach is just as painful as the other bit, if not done right. Okay, so all of that, I mean, it's it's very interesting. So it all sounds very much like sort of the management of customer experience. So I'm looking at it again from the other lens, looking at it from the side of the customer, if you like. You know, we can sort of imagine what the experience they're having. So when you're you're thinking about this and you're going perhaps even beyond the training and helping an organization to design a whole sales approach. Do you use similar tools that we would use in customer experience development, such as you talked about know your customer, but such as customer personas, thinking about customer journeys, thinking about measuring the experience from the customer's perspective. Do you do you bring those tools into play as well? Uh, very much like you, uh, Neil. I've got a, a toolbox of post-its, <laughs> coloured pens, flip chart paper. And I'm a big fan of getting up in a room, mapping out the, the customer journey on a wall and really identifying where are those customer pinch points. So and I, I do it through two perspectives, I suppose. One is where is the, the customer pinch point within your process um, and how does some of that link to your sales process? 
and where are the opportunities in your sales process to cross-sell, upsell, improve conversations, improve scripts, signpost them to other products, signpost them to, to digital stuff that they can they can use, other parts of maybe the, the value proposition that aren't necessarily product features, but could be useful. So really mapping out that um, customer journey is, is, is a great start point. And I think you touched on customer personas there, and that's a real key one for me, because if you don't understand who your ideal client is or your ideal customer persona, then how do you really know who you're selling to? And I, when I either do either one-to-one coaching or group uh, workshops and things like that, it's saying, right, actually, you hear some people say, right, well, I've got multiple personas, I've got multiple types of customer, and that's fine. You can have multiple types of customers and multiple types of personas, but how often do you communicate those to the people that are doing the sales process to say, right, actually, if this type of customer rings in, this is typically the problems and the issues and the concerns that they might have. Um, and if this type of customer rings in, these are some of the, the concerns that they might have. And actually, you do that whole segmentation piece, don't you, in that um, ACOM profiling piece is to say customers like this are going through this type of um, lifestyle change and lifestyle cycle. Um, so how do you pick up on some of those things? So it's about, and I mean, we've said it before, it's about getting into the shoes of, of your customer and understanding what they're thinking. But I think when we talk about customer personas, we often think about it from a consumer perspective. But again, as a, a B2B selling to a B2B, you want to be thinking about what's the customer persona of your business mm. uh, and what are the organizational challenges that they might be facing as, a, as an organization that team leaders might then face or what are the ambitions that they've got to grow? What's the what, what does the P&L look like? What's the kind of targets look like for this year and how can you help? So I think there's that customer persona in a front facing customer, but then there's that business persona for role specific types of organizations that it's good to understand what they might be facing as a fellow sales director what their challenges might be so i think there's there's a few elements that you can look at but i think it's just mapping it all out and then understanding where the the kind of key areas that you can influence yeah yeah okay and i mean when we get involved in quite substantial change projects where you're trying to change the culture of the organization to be more customer centric for example we often obsess ourselves with really understanding the purpose of the organization and getting a sense of exactly what not just what the organization wants to do and what its objectives are but kind of almost like what type of organization does it want to be and and then we try and help everybody within the organization who's delivering customer experience to in some way align to that so that they've got a set of principles that they're working to and I does does that come into your work as well Gary I mean do you do you often create a bit of a the characteristics of the type of sales activity that you do within an organization um, rather than just a plain vanilla sales process that you're trying to plug in. You know what, it's, it, it, it does, and it's it's defining what the sales competencies are of people. So it's it's more around, when I look at that, it's more probably from a training and competency perspective is to say, right, what does um, a salesperson in Fab Solutions look like at this level? And actually, what the different types of salesperson that you've got uh, within your organization, be it field, be it telephony, be it inbound, be it outbound. Um, what are the competencies you look for? And what values do you want them to demonstrate? And actually, quite often that comes with then, so what's the actual purpose of the business and what we're trying to do? Because actually, if you're trying to sell lots of widgets and you try to sell them at a particular margin, and that means you've got to do a a shed load of calls, you're going to need to have a specific type of person that does that. Mm. But it's also very much around what's the type of behavior Mm. that you want that person to demonstrate as well. And that needs to line back to vision, values, mission, purpose, and all those kind of things is to say, right, are you recruiting the right person? Because when you look at specifically the industry that I tend to work most predominantly in is contact centers. They've got a really high attrition rate in some of them because their recruitment isn't right. So actually, how do you define the right type of person for that sales role? And sometimes you'll recruit somebody that's got tons of sales experience, but it's in a retail environment where they're used to really quick transactional sales. And actually, if your sales cycles are a lot longer, that sometimes doesn't fit for them. So you just find Mm. that they're not the right type of person. And whilst they've got all this great sales experience, it's great sales experience in an environment that's not really right for them. So it's how do you balance the two uh, by really defining the the characteristics and the the 
values that that person's got against the uh, competencies that you're looking for. Yeah, it must be quite a hard balancing act again, sort of, you know, to create the right customer experience during a sales process, the balancing act between pushing and performance. And again, I know we're, we're, you know, we've talked about that a lot here, but, you know, how do you balance that sort of, you, you don't want to upset the customer, obviously, you don't want to be seen as an organization that's a pushy sales organization, for want of a better way of phrasing it, but at the same time, you've got to achieve your commercial results. So it must be quite hard sometimes to find that balance between that, particularly where you've got a high attrition environment, for example, you've got new people coming in through the door all the time. Definitely. You, you know what, it's really tough. And the more regulated the industry that you're working in gets, the even harder it is to kind of get that balance because you're, you're looking for things that you're looking to balance those things. So you're making sure that people aren't mis-selling and like you say, pushing product onto people. You, you're having to make sure that the information that they're giving to customers is, is factual and not misleading. You're trying to make sure that they're not doing high pressure sales tactics. And then let's face it, what's considered high pressure to me might not be high pressure to you. So actually there's a whole argument and I, i've seen this happen in real life is to say what does the qa team deem to be the right sales process versus what does the sales director or the sales manager mm. deem to be the right sales process and sometimes those two things don't meet and i've had some really heated discussions around what constitutes high pressure from a compliance perspective versus sales technique so i i think you've got to be really careful of the unintended consequences that you bring with quality calibration with reward schemes and volume targets and revenue-based targets, especially in the regulated environment, because that all drives a particular shift towards product or it drives a particular shift towards behavior, which can be counterproductive to giving the customer the right experience and delivering the right outcome. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about remuneration, funnily enough, and regulation. So I, I would absolutely agree if, you know, the unintended consequences of a, of a badly designed remuneration structure, you know, are, are are very plain to see. And a lot of the regulation that's been brought onto organ- uh, industries such as financial services is is certainly historically driven by poor sales practices, you know, largely, I mean, not entirely, but certainly largely. So, I mean, what's the what's the right sales structure then? I mean, uh, sorry, it's a remuneration structure. I mean, how, how do you do that? I mean, is there a part for commission still in, in this day and age, particularly in things like financial services, or is that just taking you in the wrong direction? You know what? I think there was, um, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but there was a bit of a thematic review done by the FCA on sales reward and remuneration packages and you, you tend to find now organizations, certainly in the financial services sector, are moving away from volume-based targets or product-based targets that link to sales reward and sales performance. And quite often you see uncapped commission schemes. And that in itself can drive poor practices because people shoot for the stars and it potentially drives behaviors where I, if I get another sale, I'll get this. If I get to this benchmark, I'll get an extra 500 quid for hitting that, which then drives higher pressure sales tactics. It drives mm. potential poor bad practices from a sales point of view. So I think when you're looking at the good sales reward structures, I, I would always say have a personal target, have a, a team level target and try and make them as smooth so that there isn't that big jump from one to the other but i think you have to look at in in certain respects how much you're incentivizing with the ote that you're sticking on the table so actually right if if the ote from going from 100 percent of target to 110 percent of target is 100 percent more than actually hitting target then you're setting yourself up for a hiding in the financial services because that just then drives a pure focus on the sales target and the sales number mm. and i think there's a balance isn't there they're saying how much can you link into your sales reward structure customer outcomes and what i have seen done really well is the stickiness of your sales so actually you need to make maintain a certain percentage of persistency mm-hmm. uh, within the sales numbers that you achieve otherwise you don't get the um the full reward so actually you want customers to buy and you want customers to buy that stick so i think that is a really good measure of how effective your sales process is is how many customers stay with you after your cancellation period yeah and have you ever seen an organization blend into that also customer experience perception scores so for example yeah just generally how how did you feel about 
what happened to you kind of stuff you know does, does that ever get blended into the remuneration or I, no? I, i've seen i've seen objective based targeting and objective based uh, reward is to say and that's usually done towards the end of the year say if you achieve x you'll get a, a top up uh, and i think that's a good way of doing it actually is to say right if you link it to a, an end of year bonus um which breeds consistency of practice i think that's a really clever way of doing it and i think that kind of drives a better culture the challenge that you've got with that is salespeople, by their very nature are generally they don't bode well to delay gratification so they want everything up front and they want it quick and with industry like sales the the movement and attrition between them people move for the for the dollar sometimes so i think it, it's it's a real challenge to find the right one but i think having incentive-based activities that are around key performance indicators such as NPS, such as customer effort score, such as positive feedback outside of your reward structure, I think work better because they breed, they demonstrate and get you to focus on the behavior rather than a behavior that drives is monetary driven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Understood. And, and just finally on financial services, just, uh, uh, well, sorry, on, on regulated industries generally, but FS is one that I know we both know well, the dreaded script. So there are points during a lot of sales processes, a moment where you have to, because of the regulation, deliver scripted. I mean, there's no way around it. You know, you've got to deliver a set of wording, which, you know, we we know probably that half the time the customer doesn't understand or doesn't listen to because it gets rattled off. I mean, What's your what's your advice around that? I mean, how do you deal with that situation when you're just forced into it? You just have to accept it and just sort of say, right, I'm about to go into, <laughs> about to read you something. And, uh, you know, is there any way of sort of packaging that up in a way that doesn't have a jarring experience from a customer's perspective? Yeah, you know, I was on a, a call the other day and actually someone did this really, really well. Is that is it, it was the pre-positioning piece to what they're about to say and they, they kind of talked about and put it into layman's terms so the same scripting elements were used and what they did is they said right i'm going to have to say this bit verbatim because it's a, a compliance requirement but it's there because of xyz so they explained the reason behind the regulation before they gave me the, the the bit of verbatim so i was a bit more accepting of it so i think where you can I dumb it down is the wrong phrase, but put it into terms that they're likely to understand. Because actually, the piece that the regulator is looking at is is everything that you've said clear, fair, and not misleading. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, as soon as I launch into a piece of regulatory language and spiel, mm. that suddenly becomes very suddenly doesn't become particularly clear. Fair, probably because I, I've heard it as, as much as anybody else. Misleading, probably not, but am I understanding it? Am I understanding the spirit of what you're actually asking? And sometimes I think some of the, the regulatory wording that we put around, it just ties people up in knots. I mean, I, I really hate the phrase in in sales when we say, right, I, I can't give you any personal recommendations. I can't give you any advice. It has to be you that makes the decision. But there's really easy ways of changing that tone and changing that message so that it sounds friendlier. And I think that's the bit that from a regulatory point of view, even in the sales environment, just thinking about it as a customer uh, and thinking about the, the messages and what you want to hear makes it much more friendlier and makes it clearer for the sales agents to get on board with and for the customers here. And I think that's what really good salespeople do is they turn some of that stuff that they have to say into stuff that is understandable and relatable. Yeah, no, interesting. It's good. I mean, where you get the freedom to we do have that. have a whole podcast on, on regulation. <laughs> well, I know, I know. And, and you know, you and I both know, even from where we both first met, uh, the, you know, the organisation you were talking about, there were all sorts of issues around that, which were very, very tricky to navigate, I recall. No, I can't say 100% nailed them all either. <laughs> no, no. Well, I'm not sure anyone can say that. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky environment. I mean, I, I think to your point there around trying to turn it into something that people understand what well, certainly one of the best practices i've seen in this respect was to take things like treating customers fairly regulation and and fire a survey to the customer after the sale before they get their cooling off their 14 day cooling off notice that basically just says look you know just want to check uh, did you feel like you understood everything today did the person tell you about this and that and that you know sort of like almost have a survey that blends 
customer experience feedback with almost a bit of a test of the understanding and and the organization concerned who I won't name were then picking up on where they got a negative score on stuff not so much from a penalty perspective with the salesperson but as a coaching opportunity to say look you know you're just not getting this across and and where they saw customers come back and say I really didn't understand what was going on then they would intervene and go back in and say look you know I'm giving you a call back as a supervisor here you know clearly you've gone away not feeling comfortable you understand you know can I go through this with you again sort of thing so I, I think technology has got a really strong arm to play in that as well, in terms of understanding how you can use and identify things like customer sentiment, keyword analysis, key phrase analysis to identify areas of development, but also things that are working really, really well. So actually, in particular, in customers that stick, are they having a particular feeling or a particular conversation or a particular style of conversation with somebody that means something different to somebody who isn't necessarily performing as well so you can use Mm. different tools to help you perform in different ways i mean we use a, a coaching tool that allows you to analyze the voice of the customer and the, the the how much the agent is speaking, the different sentiment that's attached to each of those different conversations, and then really give some targeted feedback on different areas of the call so that the, the team leader can have really good coaching conversations. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And that's good, good stuff. I mean, again, it's just you know, right at the core of good practice in terms of customer experience man- management generally. So um, I would agree entirely. A final area before a couple of quick fire ones, just to sort of wrap us up. We just talk about, I know we talked a bit about digital, but I mean, digital, especially in the last 12, 13 months because of um, the pandemic, you know, it's become pervasive in just about every single business and, and every single interaction we have as customers where people have tried to integrate in sometimes quite quickly digital channels. And obviously other organizations have been using them for some time. I mean, do you apply the same sort of principles and and the kind of acronyms and processes that you've talked about in a digital sales journey or indeed a kind of hybrid journey where you've got a bit of digital and then you've got maybe somebody picking up later on because they've jumped out of a, a digital process into perhaps one where they need to speak to somebody. I mean, does this, yeah. do the same rules apply? Or? You know, what? It's, it's so much harder when you're doing um, a hybrid digital versus end-to-end sales process because actually you've got to re-clarify all the things that the customer was searching for. You've got to really understand what those problems were and you've got to understand how informed they are about what it is that they're searching for. Uh, And I think customers in in this day and age, they are a lot more digitally savvy. They will have researched you. They will have researched the company. I I saw um, a stat online say that 80% of B2B buyers will have looked at your personal LinkedIn profile before deciding to make um, a, a business decision with you. So I think your own personal brand speaks speaks a lot. So that whole digital footprint means a lot in the sales space because actually people make a judgment of you through your digital customer journey. Actually, if that's a difficult thing to navigate, mm. they think, right, well, if you can't get your digital journey right, how are you going to make the um, the actual sales process if I need to use your product or if I need to kind of buy from you? How are you, how are you going to get that right? So I think mm. digitization of the process is really important. And that's where I think mapping your your digital customer journey yeah. becomes really, really crucial is to say, right, where are people dropping out of the um, of the funnel? If you're doing a, an online uh, procurement process, how much time are people spending on particular pages? So what's the heat map? that's sitting in there what does how many faqs what are the questions that are normally looked at how long are they spending on each of the different pages because that can tell you something really interesting about either how easy it is to navigate how much information is presented on it and then actually if you're finding that they're coming from one particular page into the contact center or shooting a, an inquiring a contact us form into your mailbox then you know that there's probably something on there that isn't isn't quite right and if you're thinking about cost to serve Really, you do want people using that digital journey because it's the cost per acquisition comes a lot lower. So I think that the sales process, when you look at it as a digital, is again thinking about those same principles around what's the information, what's the pain point, how does the customer resonate with each of those different points that you're putting in your digital journey, and how do you take them through to the next page, if you like, because that's about building the desire for your product. Uh, and saying actually right here is here is the problem that you're facing mr customer uh mrs customer here is some of the um solutions so you're teasing them a little bit with the solution validating that that is 
is right, giving them more of an in-depth view of your solution and the proposition, and then closing them down. And how do you close them down? You might use live chat, web chat, chatbots. And how do you start to train some of those digital applications to do a, the role of a salesperson? And that could be things like proactive chat, responsive chat. Um, it could be signposting after a particular time, a chatbot that then comes up and says, we noticed that you've spent X amount of time on this page. Would you like to speak to someone? Mm-hmm. Um, and popping that up and then handing that off. So there's principles that are similar, uh, but it's just how do you think about it from a customer's perspective using the um, the technology? Yeah, which what you've just described there is I could have asked you the question about how do you design a digital journey you know from a customer's perspective there's no difference between a digital sales journey and any other journey from what you've just said it's it's the same thing so fantastic thanks Gary that's that's all very clear and you know at the end of the day I goes what what I've taken from this is you know the principles of customer experience of knowing your customer you know doing the discovery piece to really understand the need and then um, delivering a proposition to somebody and and hopefully you know, at the right point, closing the the sale and, and using a variety of techniques for that. The, the principles of that and the principles of customer experience are completely aligned. Um, and it's very interesting that, you know, some of the tools that we use in CX design are exactly the same in sales. You know, it's just, it's thinking about those overall journeys. So thank you for that. A couple of very quick fire questions and um, I'll then let you go for the afternoon. What do you think being truly customer centric means? Again, that could be another podcast in itself, Neil. But um, <laughs> for me, I, I think it's understanding your customer. I, I think in its truest form, it's understanding your customer, understanding their needs, and then providing a service that is seamless um, or as seamless as it can possibly be with a solution that is centered to the customer's need. Mm-hmm. Okay. All about needs. Very good. And... Um, can you think of a great experience you've had or indeed a terrible experience you've had that, that kind of personifies either the positive or the negative of, of that? You know what? I've got an existing experience live at the moment and I, I, I wish them all the very best. Um, the energy sector is cataclysmically bad at customer experience at the moment. I say at the moment, I think it's historically been bad. I just wish they'd respond to my uh, outreach to say, I might be able to help you. Because um, I, I think, and and this in itself affects the sales process because I would not recommend or refer anybody to my existing energy supplier. I'm not going to out them on this, no, on this no, podcast. No. But if somebody said, oh, who would you recommend? It would not be this one. And mm-hmm. it's because of the long wait times in call centers. It's because of the lack of responsiveness to social media. It's the lack of uh, ownership and accountability that the, the people take when you're speaking to them and the lack of follow through. And it's just shocking. And it's mm-hmm. absolutely shocking. And if I have to listen to the same six songs on hold again, I, I think I'd go yeah despair but on the flip side there's some really great people out there and i think what the people that i tend to find doing it are the people that are more digitally savvy so a really good example that i experienced was um it it was a while ago actually when i was first kind of setting up my website via godaddy they had a great experience Mm -hmm. great experience i dialed into the contact center didn't get through to them first time, but they gave me the option to wait with music, wait without music. Uh, they gave me the option to sit in a queue. They told me how long I was in the queue. They told me who I was likely to speak to. They offered me solutions to kind of signpost me everywhere. So mm. I felt like I was being taken on a on a journey yeah. and I, I was given the option to either w- wait and kind of speak to somebody or actually get a call back so i think it's it's think and again it's thinking about what are the problems that people are facing yeah uh, and how do i want to feel going through that journey and then when i got to speak to the the agent at the end of it awesome best service they they upsold me without me knowing that i was being upsold to so i was like oh yeah add that on and add that on. <laughs> so it's you it's <laughs> And I, it's easy to sell sales people are easy to sell to i find but yeah it's a great experience so i think if you think about the 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 end outcome that you want and how you want that customer to feel at the end of it mm. and design your processes with that in mind uh, i mean it's the stephen covey thing isn't it start with the end in mind and i i said this on a, a, a podcast the other day don't start with the end in mind start with the customer's end in mind mm-hmm. is the bit that i would add, add into that but yeah that's that's yeah no no great 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 depiction of great cx design at the end of the day you're, you're looking at a journey you're looking at the pain points and looking at ways in which you can alleviate those and use the time effectively i think that's the other point there you're making which is great final final question i promise you what 
this is one thing that you have learnt during your career that you could never have learnt at a business school. I don't even know if you ever went to a business school. I certainly didn't. But is there anything that stands out that you just think that like, I, I, I couldn't have learnt that academically, but I, I've learnt it and uh, through my experience? Do you know what? I think the, the, the best one for me is actually... It's, it's all around people management and people engagement. And I don't think you can learn that in any school. The actual ability to communicate effectively into how to get people to work with you rather than against you is, and I've learned this through trial and error as well. So it's, I've made mistakes on that front. But I think it's, it's how to effectively drive a team result. I think is the, is the biggest thing that I'd say. And actually working with people and understanding, again, from their perspective, what are they trying to achieve either within that project or within their own kind of personal ambitions and how do you kind of work with people collaboratively to get, I nearly swore then, Neil, to get stuff done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, the whole teamwork ethic and the whole bit. It's amazing how many times people come up with something very similar to that as well because, um, yeah, absolutely. We all know the importance of, of all of that. So, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure as ever. Thank you so much for uh, for giving up your time and um, I think we've had a really good rummage through sales there and I hope that people come away from this conversation and this podcast just having a few thoughts and ideas and maybe for those people that are concerned about sales if you like there's lots and lots of stuff there that they can think about i think so so thank you very much indeed awesome really enjoyed that neil great conversation as always thank you very much cheers gary thank you so much thanks very much for listening today if you found that useful please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on and if you'd like to know more you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow penpartnership on linkedin until next time goodbye